Hello, and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Matthew Smith. Today we interview Michael Willis, who has a brand new book out on Algeria. And in our conversation, we talk about Maghreb politics, the place of the Maghreb in modern Middle East studies, and of course, Michael's favorite books in the Middle East. Michael Willis, fellow in Morocco and Mediterranean studies here at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and of course, the Middle East Center. We've got a new book out, Algeria, Politics and Society from the Dark Decade to the Hirak. So why don't you walk us a little bit through it? What's the book about? What inspired you to start this project? And what was your research like? Thank you, Matt, and thank you for inviting me to do this podcast. The book comes out of being approached by Hearst Publishers in about 2014 to write a book on contemporary Algeria. I had written a previous book on Algeria based on a PhD that I did back in the 1990s. And I wanted to write and look at the period since then. And I noticed that in terms of the exact starting point, the exact period I wanted to look at, but really there had been a significant change that had occurred in Algeria around the turn of millennium, the end of the 1990s, early 2000s when three big things had happened that really changed the political landscape in Algeria. The changes were in the fields of leadership, in the economy, and in society. In terms of leadership, perhaps the most obvious change was the fact of the election of a new president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika. And he came in in April 1999, and he stayed for exactly 20 years. So he sort of defines that period. But even though that's the most obvious change that occurred there, I think it's the least, probably the least important. Of much more importance was the change in, in late 1999. So again, we're looking at that period around the turn of millennium. There was a significant upturn in global oil prices. And this continued for over a decade and a half. And for a, a country like Algeria, which is heavily dependent on energy prices, oil and particularly gas, this had a transforming effect, this rise in prices over this period for state finances. So that was a second major thing that happened, and in many ways, I think the most important thing. The third thing that changed was that there was a noticeable decline in the violence that was associated with the civil conflict of the 1990s. It was a fairly gradual process, but it was noticeably the violence declined from the late 90s and into, particularly in the 2000s. And I felt that these three things, unstable leadership, civil conflict and a very dire economic situation had defined Algeria for most of the 80s and 90s. And these three new things changed the sort of game and produced a new set of things that came in. So the book was really looking at that new sort of political landscape that was created. But I also noticed about the time that I took on the book, the importance of looking at these things was further sharpened by the fact that there'd been big changes in two of those three things within the last year or so, this is back 2014-2015. First of all, in the, in the field of leadership, Bouteflika was still president, but he had had a, a serious stroke in April 2013, but effectively removed him from the public eye. He appeared in public a handful of times after that period. This coming on top of being quite ill since 2005 meant that he was not really present on the scene he was still president, but there was a sort of gap in leadership. And a lot of Algerians begin to question, well, who is leading us? Who is who is actually there? So that was the other thing that changed. And I think much more serious was the 
steady decline from 2014 in the international oil price. And I think within the space of just over a year, it lost 70% of its value. And the effect on Algeria, where it heavily dependent on these revenues, but had been spent and had actually sort of rebuilt Algeria and sorted out a lot of the problems that Algeria had had in between time, was quite clearly going to be significant. And that raised at my time whether these two things would have an impact on the third issue, the decline of the violence associated with the civil conflict in the 1990s, particularly given that Bouteflika had played a leading role in the initiatives to try and end the civil conflict, particularly amnesties for the armed groups, and he had made it his issue to try and end the civil conflict to reduce the violence. And secondly, that the oil revenues that had come in in huge amounts since the rise in price of oil and gas had really helped underwrite a lot of this peace process. A lot of the armed groups that surrendered and took up amnesties were given, often rather indirectly, money and jobs and businesses to sort of smooth the way in. There were payments made to victims of the conflict, both on the side of the regime and on the armed groups, people whose relatives had disappeared in, in state custody, and also ordinary citizens who, who had lost loved ones in it. And these were paid out. And a lot of money underwrote jobs. There's a massive increase in jobs and housing with the, the increased oil revenues, but had really smoothed this process over. So there was a big question mark but with the decline in the price of oil and gas and the revenues coming in, well, this would suddenly start to undercut the civil peace. Mm-hmm. They had never, despite there having been a peace process and a peace deal, there'd never been a systematic accounting of the conflict, a sort of peace and reconciliation process we've seen in other countries. That, uh, the Algerians didn't have that. We were just, people were paid off, there was agreement that people wouldn't take anything any further and moved on. It was often described, and I, I use the description of a book as, it was more a case of amnesia rather than amnesty as well, just people forgetting about what had happened. So there was a question about whether that would actually now begin to fray that civil peace because people were beginning to be increasingly unhappy about it. And when the first draft of a book was finished in about 2018, we could see things beginning to possibly move in that direction. But something very surprising happens in 2019. You get a mass protest movement, completely peaceful, that goes on for over a year. And really the book sort of ends with looking at that process and and how we can understand it came out of these 20 years beforehand. So the book really explains, hence why from the dark decade, which refers to the conflict of the 1990s, through until 2019 with the mass movements, Iraq, Iraq being um, Arabic for movement, and how we understand what has happened in Algeria in that period. And it sort of analyzes thematically, I look at how the conflict was, was brought to an end, I look at how politics works in certain regions, uh, I look at political attitudes, just trying to explain how politics evolved and how politics worked in Algeria during these two decades. Can you walk a little bit through the research? Was a lot of archival fieldwork, interviews? It was a mixture of things. Algeria isn't the easiest place to do research in. It's not as open to researchers as other countries, particularly on contemporary issues. There's quite a lot of research being done on the colonial period and particularly the liberation struggle. Most of what I did, I was able to spend uh, several months in Algeria uh, re- conducting research. I did it for several things. I did quite a few interviews with politicians and officials on the whole range of those topics, talking about those sort of things. Some were, were easier than others. I also used it to try and collect as much material I could that was produced by Algerian researchers. I think that's quite important to do. There's a lot of very good research being done in think tanks and also just 
academics and journalists in Algeria, but published in Algeria, available in Algeria, but don't really make it out of Algeria. So I spent quite a lot of time collecting those things that you just couldn't get outside the country. And I wanted, I think it's important to try and give voice and give an access to people who are actually writing about their own country. It was also just getting a sense of the various issues that I want to do by talking to ordinary people, spending time in the country, just seeing things for myself. There is quite a, quite a bit of secondary material and secondary research on Algeria, but it, it takes a lot of digging out. So I dug quite a few things out. I relied on quite a lot of the, some of the chapters on research I'd done for my PhD back in the 1990s. Felt I was vindicated by preserving all this material and not sure whether I'd ever use it or, or interviews I'd done I'd never ended up using or I, I changed topic or I never published. I was able to use this material. So I dug out all my own notebooks from the 1990s and found some absolute gems. It's often very interesting to look into things you didn't think were significant at the time. When you look back again, you suddenly realise some very interesting things that some interviewee said. But because your project wasn't focused on matter of time or the passage of time, you see how more significant they are. I did a whole series of interviews, for example, with the senior people in the FIS in the 1990s. I was able to draw on that when we were looking at the peace negotiations and how that came out of the civil conflict. So that was mainly it was. It was just gathering a lot of things to do. And the Algerian press is certainly until very recently was very vibrant. You've got a lot of, it was a very, quite a critical, quite engaged press. And the coverage of, of politics and international events and even international relations was very good. So you've got actually proper discussion, a sort of a critical discussion of what was going on politically. And they were actually a very good source base. Journalists were also very happy. I interviewed a lot of journalists just to uncover material, get perspectives on things. So that was another good source base, the Algerian press. Unfortunately, the Algerian press has begun being clamped down upon even just in the last year. And it's no longer the source base that it was, particularly journals like El Watan and Liberté and several of the others were extremely useful in providing a lot of information about local political developments. I think that's a great jumping off point then. So the Hirak movement starts in 2019. That makes headlines across the world in Al Jazeera, New York Times. But then we haven't really heard a lot about Algeria since. So can you give us an idea of what's been going on in Algeria during the pandemic and what has the Hirak movement achieved, if anything, at all? Yes, well, I think the, you're referring to the pandemic is the right starting point because the Hirak continued. There were two things that marked it out. Firstly, that it was exclusively peaceful and it maintained that. And the second thing, it was determined to keep going whatever. But the, the authorities in Algeria had hoped that during the summer months that people wouldn't want to march and people kept on marching every week, every <laughs> Friday. And they achieved the first anniversary of still doing their big weekly demonstrations in Algiers and the other big cities. But then we get to March 2020, and like the rest of the world, it became really unviable to carry on doing the, the, the marches. So the movement voluntarily suspended the marches themselves. And it was felt that possibly this may be the end of it. But when things eased again in February 2021, the weekly demonstration started again. And it was a feeling that showed you that it, it hadn't gone away, that the issues were still there. They were still saying there hadn't been enough change. But the, the, the movement itself had demanded initially the departure of President Bouteflika, not because he was some terrible dictator, but because he clearly wasn't running the country because he was so ill, the fact that he wasn't even in the public eye. Um, people in Algeria were particularly alarmed by the fact in his last years or so, he was represented at, at national events by an enormous giant portrait of him. 
not about you and said well are we north korea or something <laughs> or, uh, we don't even know who's running the country yeah so this was one unhappiness but even when Bouteflika resigned and didn't seek to run again they wanted to clear out of the whole political elite and they wanted a change of the system this didn't really happen they wanted to keep the protest going but unfortunately there was another second wave in the pandemic as we remember in 2021 and this forced the, 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 the Hirak movement to suspend its weekly protests again. And this time it was backed up by fairly heavy repression by the regime, targeting of key people and making sure that there was no revival. Protests would happen every Friday in, in Algiers and they just flooded it with police vans and police every Friday they're on in to make sure that it never really revived. It hasn't revived for a third time. That said, a, a friend of mine who was very active in the Hirak when I asked him, is the Hirak dead? He said, well, it's not dead because it's an idea. It's not a movement, mm. it's an idea. And that idea hasn't gone away about the, re the wholesale reform that Algeria needs to give it a representative regime that isn't corrupt, that actually responds to the needs of the people and actually um, makes full use of the, of the resources that Algeria has been, been blessed with. So we really have seen the regime sort of reassert itself. It's changed its personnel. And this is another very interesting aspect of Algeria that virtually all of the people from the Bouteflika era have now gone, but new people have come in, or in reality recycled people have come back in, with virtually a, hardly a ripple on what has gone on. So the, the regime has been able to replace itself and continue with pretty much the same trajectory as before, which shows the resilience of, of, of the regime, and also how it isn't really based in individual personalities. It's all based on institutional actors and people coming through the ranks. There's other countries in the Arab Maghreb. So if you don't mind, let's turn to Tunisia, mm -hmm. um, which just had a large referendum yes. this summer that some commentators have said this is the end of the Arab Spring project in Tunisia, that Ennahda's uh, once dreams of an open and free democracy after Ben Ali are now gone with the successful rep referendum led by Kai Saeed. So what do you think of that? I think it's really quite disappointing and depressing what's happened in Tunisia. You've really basically got the reassertion of a much more authoritarian regime, more precisely through the suspension of the democratic part of it. The, the current president, Kais Saeed, was democratically elected in 2019, but then in the summer of 2021, decided to suspend the parliament and to suspend and rewrite the constitution, basically giving himself most of the powers and making sure the other institutions were fairly subservient to him in a way that really wasn't democratic. The parties were really pushed out of the system. There are now scheduled to be elections in a couple of weeks' time. The parties are not allowed to participate in it. Everybody is an individual candidate. The judiciary has been hemmed in. The press has been hemmed in. Uh, the parties have. And really you're seeing really the dismantling of a lot of the democratic structures that were put in place 10 years ago after revolution. How permanent that way is difficult to say certainly there hasn't been much resistance. I think one of the problems is the opposition in Tunisia is waiting for the Kaiside regime to fall apart and then to move in, but that's not guaranteed. The damage inflicted in between time. I think there's several things going on there. I think there was certainly a disillusion of the political parties and the processes, and I think Kaiside exploited that. But most of the disillusionment was to do with economic unhappiness with the fairly dire economic situation that, that Tunisia finds itself in, in terms of jobs, investment. 
And Kaisai didn't come with some grand new economic plan. He came with a plan to reorganize the constitutional arrangements of Tunisia. He's a constitutional lawyer. Yeah. And that didn't really solve anything. So I think Tunisia, economically, people are as unhappy as they ever were. He is getting people to vote for various things he wants, but below 30% of the population are voting. So most people are even more disillusioned with things than before. So rather, it isn't quite a return to a Ben Ali system, but it's progressing along that road. And you may end up seeing Tunisia being one of these semi-democracies, unfortunately. I've been hearing from scholars, and including yourself and some of your thesis students, both on the master's level and the DPhil level, that there's a significant sort of nostalgia for the Habib Bourguiba times now in modern Tunisia. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, this is a sort of inevitable phen phenomenon you often get in the situation. There's a fact that after the revolution, with the new constitutional arrangements, no party dominated and there were multi-party coalitions, the, there wasn't a huge improvement in the social economic situation in Tunisia. There are many reasons for that. And there began to be a slight nostalgia for the days of the a more authoritarian rule. Not so much under the last dictator, Ben Ali, but his predecessor, Habib Bourguiba, who, just, who was the founder of modern Tunisia as the sort of leader of the main nationalist movement. And I think you're seeing echoes of this in present Saïd. There's, there's, there's the view, and you hear it in many societies, about the need for a strong man to take control of a situation, or be squabbling political parties, need to be pushed out of the way, everybody knows what needs to be done. And I think there's a little bit of a nostalgia coming there, but whether it actually produces anything and actually improves the everyday lot of, of most Tunisians, I very much doubt. And I think also there's a lot of this nostalgia is, like a lot of nostalgia, isn't actually really based on, on reality. If you go back to the, certainly the last decade or so under Bourguiba, he was very well regarded by the population in the 60s and 70s, but by the end he'd become substantially senile and the country really wanted to see the back of him, not because they didn't respect what he did, but because he wasn't really capable of running the country and was running it completely personally because he believed he was the only one who understood what needed to be done in Tunisia. So I don't think people wanted to get rid of him. They now look back and said it was wonderful and everything was great under him. But I think it's a rather, as with most nostalgia, a little bit rose-tinted. So now moving back across the Maghreb, towards the Atlantic, and we also have Morocco. Mm -hmm. Morocco's been going through a bit of an identity crisis, hasn't it, in the past couple of years? So they've been turning less towards the Arab world, more towards their African identity and their other minority identities. And I know you've been supervising some students who have been looking at that. So mm -hmm. what has that been looking like in the kingdom of Morocco? Yes, I think quite a lot of interesting things have been going on in Morocco. There's a the discussion of Moroccan identity and its place in the world, its place in the region has been evolving. It's probably most evident in the greater emphasis given to aspects of its history and identity that haven't perhaps had the prominence it's had in the past. You see that certainly over the last 10 years Morocco's put a lot more emphasis on its place in Africa. That's seen in expanded trade, expanded diplomacy, the King of Morocco visits sub-Saharan Africa a lot and there's a big push to see Morocco as, a, as much more part of the African continent. At the same time, there's been a great expansion with official backing of the role and significance and place of the country's Amazir, Berber culture and identity and history and language. For example, the Berber language, Tamazir, is now an official language of Morocco alongside Arabic. Those sort of changes have been introduced. 
there's been a lot more interest and emphasis and research done on Morocco's extensive Jewish past. Up until 50, 60, 70 years ago, Morocco had the largest Jewish population of any country in the Arab world. There's substantial connections there. And Morocco put a lot of emphasis on that. So you get these other forms of identity being pushed. But at the same time, this is what some students have been looking at, is what has been pushed back? And clearly one of the identities that's been pushed back about is the Arab identity of Morocco. That's not to say it's ignored. Arabic is still a main language. But it is it is seen as much less important. Now, there are various reasons for that. But I think one of them is I think Morocco is interested in creating a little bit of separation of itself from the wider Arab world. And I think one of the main reasons to that is to sort of insulate it from, can we say, pan-Arab movements and tendencies, particularly something like what became known as the Arab Spring, the movement of 2011. The government dealt with it fairly effectively. There weren't huge major changes. There weren't too much upheaval. But it was clearly concerned that things could have been worse. And I think this is part of the process of saying, well, we can't really have an Arab Spring if we're not really Arab. We've got all these other things going on. You see it played in practical things uh, as well. It's much more emphasis on other parts of the world. The normalization of relations with Israel is part of that movement away from the Arab world, also obviously linking in with its emphasis of its, its, its significant Jewish heritage. Also a feeling, I suppose, that parts of the Middle East and the Arab world are somehow seen as problematic by other parts of the world. So Morocco likes to uh, separate itself. But also, above all of this, is a forging of a very Moroccan-centred notion of identity. So you get discussions of Moroccan Islam. Mm. There's big emphasis on colloquial Moroccan Arabic, that is, yeah. as a distinct language, but it should even be taught as such, and that should be written as such. You begin to see in adverts, for example, things, adverts written in Davija. Oh, wow. Which is quite a, yeah. quite a new thing. And that's part of this idea that Morocco has its own very particular identity, so the national identity is strengthened, that strengthens the central government, and also insulates Morocco against these more transnational trends that could be destabilizing for it. Now we can move away from current events of the region. Let's talk a little bit about the field of Middle East studies generally. Mm -hmm. You study the Maghreb, but often Middle East studies programs are dominated by scholars of the Mashrek. Yeah. So as a Maghreb scholar, how do you find the Mashrek focus on Middle East studies? How do you other Maghreb scholars navigate that? And where's the beginning of true like Maghreb scholarship mm -hmm. and Maghreb scholars saying we need to really study this part of the world in a significant way like we do, say, Egypt or the Gulf or the Levant? I think there's been, there's been changes. I think it's natural in the Anglophone world and particularly in Britain that the emphasis has been on the Eastern Arab world, the Mashrek, the Levant, Egypt, the Gulf. And there are very good reasons for that. Historically, Britain was much more engaged during the colonial period in these parts of the Middle East. Research naturally was on because through family connections and through institutional connections, those of you work, people working on history will use with archives and British archives uh, we have here at Middle East Centre. A lot of it has come from British officials who served in the Gulf at that time. So these sort of connections are quite normal. The Middle East historically has also tended to have more going on it in terms of politically and international affairs. We think of the Arab-Israeli conflict, we think of the wars in the Gulf, those sort of things. So it's natural most people work on it. But really, it has, the Maghreb, in that sense, was 
was really a very, very minor part of Africa, hardly ever got studied in British institutions. Even as later than early 1990s, when I started studying the Maghreb, there, was, there were very few people working in the Maghreb. And I always joke and say, but when I started working on it, I, and if I was in a Middle East event in Britain, and I mentioned that I was studying the Maghreb, I was studying Algeria at that point, I'd get sort of rather puzzled looks from people who would say, well, I don't really know anything you know, west of Cairo. <laughs> and then they'd sort of look brightly and say, well, oh, yes, my wife's cousin went on holiday to Tunisia a few years ago. And it seems, and apparently it's very nice there. And there was very little known on that. And I was, in my department, I was in at the University of Durham. I was pretty well the only one person working on anything, again, west of Cairo. Somebody was working on Libya, certainly the only one. But I think that substantially changed. There's a lot more interest in the Maghreb. I mean, the other reason for it was a fact that really had been left to France as the main colonial power, certainly in Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and the French study. But I think those sort of old dividing lines have changed. A lot more French scholars are now working on the Mushrek, and a lot more Anglophone scholars are working on the Maghreb, like me. I've seen more and more people come through. We still really are this sort of sister of, of Middle Eastern studies. I teach, for example, in the Middle East Centre, not, not the Middle East and North African Centre. The degree that you're studying on math, or when we are, is the degree in modern Middle Eastern studies. There's no mention of North Africa or the Maghreb. I don't mind that. I'll put up with that. I'd like to see that change one day. It may not change anytime soon, but we certainly cover the Maghreb. But in terms of interest, obviously I'm interested in that, and I can explain why I'm interested in it. I went on, after doing my PhD on Algeria, I went to talk to Morocco for seven years at the university, so I had my interest there. But I've noticed there's been a growth, and I can look at it, for example, in certainly the graduate work that we've done at Middle East Centre. When I arrived at Middle East Centre in 2004, which is, what, 18 years ago, that makes me feel very old, <laughs> I assume that when I took DPhil students, that I'd have only a very occasional one working on the Maghreb, and I really work on other themes, other things to do with Middle East. Pretty well all of my graduate, my DPhil students over the last 18 years have been working on the Maghreb, so hmm. people have come in on that. Even more gratifying is the fact that I offer a, an option in politics of the Maghreb, and that's offered most terms to students on the MPhil and MSc, and students take it, but interesting enough, it's not because they come with a background in the Maghreb, but a lot of students just want to study something they haven't studied before. Mm -hmm. So the novelty of the Maghreb has actually drawn students into sort of my option, several of whom have gone on to do DPhils and are now established <laughs> academics working on that. So... But it was due to the novelty. When it becomes less of a novelty, I don't know whether I'll get so many students, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But certainly it's grown. A lot of things have changed that. There's a lot more interest, for example, Tunisia, which was really very few people studied before the revolution of 2011. It was difficult to go to. It was a police state. And police states, uh, as most people know, they're not only difficult places to study, they're not terribly interesting things to study when it's just the same thing happening. They'd I'd go around the rounds and they'd say, well, basically Ben Ali runs everything and everything's really repressed. And it's the same as when you came three years ago, unfortunately. That's, with the revolution, that yeah. changed massively. Definitely. And Tunisia actually became a huge site of research. An enormous amount of research has been going, which I think is fascinating. And most of the research is focused on the post-revolutionary period. And now I've been trying to encourage them to do stuff on the pre-revolutionary period. Now they think Tunisia is much more accessible. But you almost have the opposite problem with other parts of a region being more difficult to visit. There's almost been over-focused on Tunisia. There's the ongoing problem, I think, in our field, we get a lot of things, where you, people study things that are easier to study and don't study things that are more difficult to study. I think there are reasons for that. We try and correct that. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book on Algeria. 
Tunisia and, and Morocco are much easier to do study on, and I could find out much more material, and I could probably write better books on them. But I felt that Algeria needed to have something written about it because it was difficult to research. It is difficult to get visas to do research there. People are less open to being interviewed and, and to try and find out what has actually happened within the system. So I think overall thing, things have changed quite a bit. There is more and more interest. I think it's beginning to even out. But I, I still like to moan that I'm really it's a little bit forgotten about yeah. and that nobody really is interested in things that happen west of Cairo, <laughs> when actually I think there's a lot that happens west of Cairo. We talk a lot about the greats in Middle East studies, like Abu Karani. Mm-hmm. Who are some of the, the greats in Maghreb studies? There was a generation that really came out and did most of their research in the 1960s and wrote some of the foundation books. I think, yeah, you, Matt, you did my policy in Maghreb. Yeah. I, <laughs> I made you read some of the great ones. John Waterbury working on, on Morocco's book, Command of the Faithful, is a classic in his yep. field. Mm-hmm. David Marino Ottaway work, writing on um, Algeria. A William Quant, Bill Quant, mm-hmm. who went on to work more on the Middle East. Yeah. His, his book was on that, he's a, he's a foundation one. But that was funny that we read that in your seminar and yes. then also in Eugene's History of the Middle East seminar this year. Two books, two, or it might have been an article by William Quant. Oh, yes, because he went to end like on more Arab-Israeli and yeah. other things as well. So, But he started on the Margaret. And in one sense, that, that's, I'm always a bit sad, but we lost him to John Waterbury as well. Started yeah. working on Egypt after that. Mm. It became more difficult or less interesting to work on the Margaret. But these are still some of them. And we researched on that. Mm-hmm. Clement Henry working on Tunisia was another one. People were interested in the region because it was sort of aftermath independence. But really, things drift away in the 70s, 80s. You don't get the same number of people. There are people in Britain, for example, who emerged in the sort of 70s. Hugh Roberts working in Algeria, and then George Joffe, who worked across the region, initially working on Morocco, began to put forth. When I came in the 80s, there hadn't been a lot of people studying it. And really things began to revive a little bit in the 90s. I was from the generation that came through the 90s. So a lot of those people who were from the 60s, Bill Zartman is another person, who did a lot of very good early work on that period. So that was, in one sense, the golden age, and it's nice to try and get more people coming in later on. Regrettably, George Joffe just died earlier this year, and that generation is beginning to pass through, and I hope the new generation will come, will come through. But we really did build on a lot of the great work they had done. One of our last questions we ask every guest, and we don't prep you for it because we want a genuine answer. <laughs> What's your favorite book on the Middle East that you would recommend to our listeners? What's so if you to pick one book Ooh. that said either this sparked my interest or this is something I think everybody who wants to know something about the modern Middle East should have to read? I'd go for one that sparked my interest. So I think the first book I read that really, really caught my interest on the Middle East was Robert Fisk's Pity the Nation. Hmm. It was a book on basically Lebanon from I think really the 70s. I think it came out in the late 80s or very early 90s. And it was... Robert Fisk, as you know, was the longtime correspondent of the Times and then the Independent of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And it was his account of the Lebanese conflict, drawn a lot from his own personal experience. He lived in Beirut for most of his period. Now, Robert Fisk went on to be very controversial. Not everybody is a fan. He has a lot of critiques. Even I would be critical of some of the perspectives he had, some of the things he did, some of his arguments. But what I I thought was remarkable about Pity of a Nation was that it could really inform and also get you to think about things and also it was the emotional connection. 
he would write about things that happened in Lebanon, about the experiences of ordinary people, the best way the best journalist can. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading it, this is over 30 years ago, and there were bits in that book I remember reading where I literally had to put the book down and just gather myself because mm-hmm. it was, the things he was describing was so emotionally shocking, really. But that made me think about the region. It made me care. It made me interested. And in a way that brought it to life, it's very easy to get lost in the sort of the, the, sort of the politics and the sort of more academic side of things. This is really about people. He was writing about people. And the fact that the conflict in Lebanon really affects ordinary people in ways that we should really engage and care about. And that made me think about it. I'm I'm not at all sure whether I've been able to follow that tradition. But in terms of being able to engage and think about the region and think about it in terms of people and how it affects people's lives, I think that sort of writing, again, as I said, Robert Fisk isn't without his critics. But in terms of being able to engage, that book really changed me and that really brought me into studying the Middle East. Any parting thoughts for our listeners before we uh, head off? Come and study the Maghreb. There's lots of interesting things going on there. You know, well, without my, my other colleagues won't thank me for saying this, but yeah, we've done research on Arab-Israeli conflict. Well, a lot of research on Egypt. Come and study the Maghreb. Virtually nobody's, apart from Tunisia, Algeria needs, for example, a huge amount of research, particularly on things that happened in the post-independence period. My book has come out from Algeria. There, there is enormous enormous gap for people to come and write a much better book than that and I encourage you to come and do that so please do that Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia fascinating countries come and study and one last pitch what's the name of the book and where can we find it yes it's Algeria Politics and Society from the Dark Decade to the Hirat it's published by Hearst it will be published by OUP in the States in a year or so's time and you can find it either on Amazon or on the Hearst publishers website excellent Mike Willis Thank you for joining Almanac. Thank you very much, Matt. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Almanac is a student-run initiative out of the Middle East Center at the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent the official opinions of the University of Oxford or the Middle East Center.